Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Well, before we get into the word this morning, we um, have the joy to watch a video from a missionary couple that we've sent out at from Crosspoint, Caleb and Leah Carr, which I'll show you in just a second. Let me also just mention that um, you, you may have noticed that none of our pastoral staff is here. Uh, that's because we have had a few confirmed cases in the church of COVID this past week, and our pastors, in particular Tyler, was exposed to those people. So in an abundance of caution, Tyler and the other pastors who are around Tyler are self-quarantining. Lord willing, we will get them tested early this next week and, and they will be okay. But do pray for several in our church that have tested positive, um, that are asymptomatic at this point, but, and then the others that have been exposed to them. I want to show you a video that Caleb and Leah Carr, who are members of Crosspoint, a young couple that we sent out uh, to Kosovo, a few years ago, and they are coming back home uh, to be on furlough at the end of this month, and they made a, a thank you video. Now this video, if you're watching on live stream, uh, we're not going to be able to show it to you just for security purposes, because some of the people that are on this video from their church there in country, uh, it would just be better for them if they were not sort of publicly broadcasted on the internet. And so you may just be seeing a screen that says, we'll see you again in a few minutes. Uh, but this is a video, a thank you video from the church there in Kosovo that uh, was able to purchase their building and their property, which is very unusual for a church in that part of the world. And that is due in large part to the generosity in the giving of Crosspoint. We gave a large m amount of money to the church there so that they could purchase their own building and not be beholden to a landlord. And so this is really a thank you note. You're going to see a few members of the church mentioning some things. So we can be praying for Caleb and Leah and their ministry there in Kosovo and for Alpha Omega Church there. And uh, we will see them again, Lord willing, as they come home from furlough at the end of July. And before we watch this video here, it's just a quick three-minute thank you video. I just want to say thank you, church, for your generosity during these times. It's because of the generosity of the church that we are able to do things like this, send thousands of dollars across the world to purchase a building. We're able to help a church here in Columbus that's struggling. You've been so generous. And even during this time of pandemic where we're not gathering, we're not even receiving an offering physically, the giving has been up, praise God. So thank you for that. Um, you've been so generous. You can give online. You can drop checks in the boxes on the way out. But just know that we're so grateful for your generosity because, friends, this is the ultimate end, because it helps to, to send the gospel, uh, not just in our city, as needed as that is, but all around the world. So let's be blessed by Caleb and Leah Carr and their church there in Kosovo. Amen. Praise the Lord for that. Looking forward to seeing Caleb and Leah when they return soon at the end of this month. Well, if you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 5. Our text this morning is verses 13 through 18. This is the second to last message in James. We'll finish up next week, Lord willing. And we come to one of the more well-known, more discussed, more talked about passages in the whole letter of James. Probably one of the passages, the sections of James that the average person is most familiar with. It's a call to prayer for primarily for the sick. And I think at times it's been one of the most misunderstood or misapplied passages in James. And so we're going to get into it. Now listen, I understand the challenges. It's the dog days of summer. It's 90 blazing degrees outside. We're getting tired of this pandemic. We don't know how to act. We have to wear masks. We're socially distanced. The room doesn't feel like it used to feel. It's not as full of people and life is inconvenient. But friends, we're here now. We're in this place or we're watching online and we are God's people together gathered with saints around the world and there's nothing more, more wonderful 
more glorious than being able to give our attention to God's word. Jay read for us from 1 Peter 5 that we, although we are grieved by various trials, it's because God's testing us to make our faith more genuine so that it would endure to the last day. We're living in the passage that he just read. Praise God for that. So let's, let's make the most of our time together, whether in person or online, and let's, let's roll up our sleeves and be hearty Christians as we look at his word, all right? Now, this is not an easy text. I'm going to tell you that right now. We're going to roll up our sleeves, and we're going to dig into this, and um, I'm going to need God's help and your attention, and we're going to get through this, all right? So let's, what an introduction. You're so excited now. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for this beautiful passage. Help us, help us. Thank you for Caleb and Leah. Thank you for Pastor Nazi there and Kosovo. Thank you for the church there. Thank you for the generosity of this church. Thank you for churches in our city. Lord, we, we, we know the need is great. The need is great down the block. The need is great across the world. Guard our hearts from being cynical and pitting the nations against our neighbors or our neighbors against the nations. The world is great. The world is huge. And you've blessed this church. We can do both. We must do both. We must love our city. We must love the nations. Help us. Help us understand this text. The challenges are great. We're anxious. We're nervous. We're angry. We're cynical. We're fearful. We're inconvenienced. We're uncomfortable. There are a thousand things that are against us right now, conspiring against us to give our attention, to wander, to, to feel sorry for ourselves, to, for a thousand different things. But Lord, nothing can be more important than your people meeting you in your word this morning. Grow us in the faith. Make us more like Jesus. And if there are friends that are listening, either in person or on live stream or picking this up later, that don't know you, Lord, cause their dead hearts to come alive so that they can trust and see Jesus and believe in him and be saved and do all of this Lord I pray for the glory of your name and for the good of your people and help me to be helpful to these people that I care so much about and I pray it all in Jesus name amen James 5 let me read verses 13 through 18 all the way through is anyone among you suffering let him pray is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Now, my plan to unpack this text is just to work through it verse by verse and then to end with four very brief reflections on how we should respond to this text. But first, a little bit of background. This text is about praying for the sick. And we need to understand the gap between us and first century audiences that would have been receiving this letter from James for the first time, the church scattered throughout the Roman Empire. To be sick in the first century was a precarious situation. The mortality rate for people that had just regular sicknesses that we have common medications for was, was, was much, more, what, much higher than it is today. Now, in God's kind providence, we happen to be reading this text during the middle of an international health scare and pandemic. So certainly there is some application to this. But the point is, 
is that we have medicine, we have doctors, we have most of us anyway, the vast majority of us, have ready access to wonderful health care, and that was not the case in the first century. And so what James is doing here, remember the theme of James, is that the true Christian who has true saving faith, their faith, if it is in fact saving authentic faith, is going to produce a life Not a perfect life, but a life of obedience to the Lord with faith that works itself out in loving action to the community around them. And here he's calling for prayer for those who are sick. And we're going to analyze what he means more deeply by this. So let's look at verse 13. Verse 13, the easiest verse of these verses that we'll look at today. Rather straightforward and clear. Verse 13, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So I think the point of this verse is clear and straightforward. James is saying, look, are you suffering? Remember the context is these people that were suffering because of these rich landowners. And he is saying that the reflex of the true Christian, the person who has authentic faith, when they face trials, is to pray. Now let's admit that we have obstacles to this. In our context, we have so many other options that we are prone to run to when things get difficult. All the things that we have in our lives that we go to before we instinctively pray. We also, another obstacle we have, I think, and I think sometimes men may suffer from this more than women. I mentioned this a few weeks ago during Father's Day when I was talking about acting like men, is that there sometimes is an over-spiritualized perception of prayer that prevents some people from simply praying. Maybe you hear people that are vocational ministers or people that are public speakers or people that are on the internet that are great orators and communicators of God's word and they speak the word of God or they pray with great eloquence and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but the power is not in human eloquence. It's in the heartfelt, earnest, faithful prayer of a person even in simple words. And so sometimes in our culture, especially in this culture where we are so aware of each other's speech, we have over-spiritualized prayer, which causes some people wrongly to not pray at all. Don't fall into that pit, dear ones. Another obstacle we have is just a general spiritual immaturity. Churches in our land that would rather just fill their auditoriums up with people and give them just little tidbits of spiritual truth rather than to going deep into the word and into doctrine. And it creates a kind of anemic Christianity where people are not discipled, they are poorly taught, and they are not encouraged to pray themselves. And then I think it needs mentioning that the prayerlessness of some people may be due to the fact that they think they know the Lord, but they do not truly know the Lord. And if a person never prays, if they never read God's word, if they never have an instinct to gather with the church, if they never have an instinct when things are difficult to turn to the Lord, it may be, in fact, it likely is an indication that they are not truly born again. Their hearts are cold. They're not made new. Friends, don't let this be so of us. What James is saying here simply is that Christians pray. We should pray. And then he says, are you cheerful? If you're cheerful, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. If things are going well, again, this is clear, sing praise. So conversely, while we may be prone to run to God when we are suffering, we sometimes forget to go to him in praise when everything is going well. And James clearly implies that this should not be the case. Now, strangely, This part of the verse may actually be more difficult to obey than praying when we are suffering. Because when we're just kind of skimming along and everything seems to be going good, sometimes it's we are prone to forget about God. But the point here in the second half of verse 13 is that Christians, whether in suffering or in cheerfulness, are to live Godward lives. We were created by him and for him, and we are to posture ourselves in giving him glory in bad times and in good times. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So whether you're suffering, glorify God in your prayers. If you're cheerful, glorify God in your praise. And thus ends the easy to explain portion 
of this text. Verse 14, here we go. Roll up your sleeves. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Okay, this verse is a bit of a doozy. What does it mean? Let's look carefully at it. What does sick mean here? He says, is anyone among you sick? Does it, this has been contested or debated or analyzed in the history of looking at this passage through the centuries, does the sickness here mean some sort of spiritual sickness or is James referring to physical sickness? The overwhelming consensus is that James here is referring to a physical sickness, not a spiritual sickness or spiritual condition. Why? Why do we think that? Why do I come to that conclusion? Well, it's clear. It says if, you're, if a person is sick, let him call for the elders of the church. So it's clear, it seems implied, that the person is not physically able to go to the elders of the church. They have to come to him or her because they are incapacitated due to this physical sickness. And then there's this picture here. It says, let them pray over him. So the elders are praying over this person person and the picture, the context, the implication is that the person is bedridden. So this has led, I think, to the right understanding of this verse that this sickness here is a physical sickness. But it's not just, well, you have a cold or you got some, some sort of you know, fever. It, the situation seems to be very clear. This is a very ill person. It's a dire situation. They're calling the elders in. They can't get out of bed and they have to pray over this person. Now, a word before we look at the rest of the text about elders of the church. Notice that they are calling for the person is to call for the elders of the church. What does that mean? Does it mean the oldest people in the church? No. When you see the word elders in the New Testament, it's referring to a spiritual office. In fact, the words pastor and elder overseer, maybe if you have an older translation, bishop, are interchangeable. They are different words that are describing the same role or function or office in the church. What do elders do? What's their primary function? They are to teach. They're to lead the church by their right understanding of the Word of God. We see in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus chapter 1, the two places in the New Testament where Paul describes to these young pastors, Timothy and Titus respectively, the characteristics of an elder. And they're just characteristics that we want to see in every man in the church, with the exception of the fact that these elders need to have an ability, a a gift of teaching, and they need to be able to understand good doctrine according to Titus chapter 1 so that they can refute those who don't understand good doctrine and it might lead the church away. That is very prevalent back then and in our day. And Paul says in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17 that the elders of the church are to rule or to govern or to lead the church not by the force of their personality, I'm paraphrasing here, but through the preaching and the teaching of God's word. So elders are simply good men who are exemplary examples, that's redundant, who are good examples of what it means to follow Jesus, who have an ability to understand the word of God and deliver it to the sheep so that the sheep of the church are fed by God's word and the spirit of God that's written God's word, not by the strength or the charisma of a person or a man. And elders are to keep watch. They don't only teach and lead, they keep watch over the church We read in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17, it says, Obey your leaders. The context there clearly seems to be elders. And submit to them. Why? For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. And finally, elders are to pray. They are to pray for the church. The great, one of the primary ways we see in the New Testament that elders lead the church is by teaching and by praying. This is not to say that the elders in this office that they hold in the church means that their prayer is more effective than other Christians in the church. 
but it does mean to say that they have a particular function in the church that when the situation is serious, because it's their responsibility, because they're the primary people in the church who are responsible for the whole congregation in this way, they tend to the brothers and sisters in the church in distress by prayer. Finally, one more word about elders. Who are elders? Just so we understand this. Elders are men and only men. And we see that because the primary role of elders in the New Testament, in places like 1 Timothy 2 and others, is to teach and to lead. And Paul clearly withholds, restricts that role of teaching and leading in the gathered church from women, not because they are less than in any way, not because women are less capable. In fact, my empirical experience in life has been that often case, women are more capable than men in many ways. That, that deserved a better amen. But God has designed men and women in complementary ways, although they are equal co-heirs with Christ. He has given them different roles, and men are to lead in their homes and in the church, and thus they are to lead by teaching and leading, and the roles of teaching and leading, according to 1 Timothy 2, is not something that's open to a woman, not because she is less than in any way, but because Paul puts his reasoning in the order of creation. He says, because Adam was formed first, then Eve. So the order, the reason that the women shouldn't be elders in the church is not a function of sin. It's not a result of the fall. It's because of God's good pre-fall created order where men are to lead, to lay down their lives, to serve the church. So elders are men. And there are men who meet the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. They're regular, ordinary men who are good, albeit not perfect examples of what it means to follow Jesus. And they lead the church by praying and by teaching and by shepherding the flock. And what are they to do? They are to anoint him, this person, him or her, with oil. Now, here we go. What is the purpose of this oil? There have been three major interpretations in the history of the church as to why James would say, what's the purpose here? What's the, what's the significance of anointing with oil? Three main interpretations. One would be medicinal. The view is that this oil has a kind of medicine sort of healing balm to it. We see in places like the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10 where this man is beaten up and the Good Samaritan rubs oil on his wounds, obviously with the intent to bring physical comfort. But I don't think this medicinal view of this oil here is, is really uh, the right one because it, 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 what, what is James saying here? If it was medicinal, then it would be like this is some kind of magic oil. Why would this oil be used for all types of illnesses? You know, the, the, the physical wounds of the man beaten there in Luke chapter 10, we can understand that. But what if you have some respiratory affection? Friends, this is not some sort of strange mystic essential oil. And I, it's, 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 it's not medicinal. And if it was medicinal, why would you need the elders of the church to be doing the anointing? I mean, if I'm sick and I need, need oil rubbed on my body, the last people I would want it to be is my fellow brother elders as much as I love them. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay. <laughs> So I don't think that view holds up. The next dominant view in the history of the church is the Catholic view of extreme unction or what is often called the last rites or preparation for death. It's a kind of anointing, putting oil on a person as a kind of spiritual cleaning, preparing a person for death. I want to say unequivocally that there is absolutely no basis for this in the text at all. This view developed progressively through the early centuries of the church and became crystallized in Catholic doctrine in about the 800s and then later on in the 1500s. And it was a kind of preparation for a person who was on their deathbed wanting to expunge them of any sins that they may have. But friends, this view is in complete contradiction 
to the direction of this text because what's in view here is not the preparation of a person for death, but the healing and raising up of a person to a healthy life. That's not what's going on here in this text. And if I may add, just in my opinion, I think that what's going on there is that this Catholic view is wrongly developed through the centuries, centuries, and it's become really a heresy. It's one of the seven sacraments by which the Catholic Church views that a person can be made right with God, and it completely undermines the gospel. It's a kind of hocus-pocus magic, essentially, whereby they wrongly teach in an anti-Bible sort of way that a person can be expunged from their sins because something is done to them at the end of their life, which is the same problem that Catholic theology has with infant baptism, where they think baptizing a child somehow strangely does something with their sin. Friends, nothing could be further from the clear teaching of the Bible. Now, I am not, in some antagonistic way, wanting to, uh, 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 in, in just my opinion, criticize Catholic friends But friends, if you believe that, that is not the gospel, and that view will not save you. And what's the third view, which I think is the right view, and it is the symbolic view, that this oil is merely a picture of consecrating a person to God for special attention in prayer. We see examples of this in the Old Testament, places like Exodus chapter 28, where Aaron, the priest, and his sons were consecrated. They were anointed with oil, and the point was to set them apart for service or special attention by God for that task or that situation. We see examples of that in other places in the Bible. So I think that's the correct interpretation of what this anointing with oil means. It's not medicinal. It's not some strange hocus-pocus oil that will expunge sin. It's just merely, merely a symbol of setting this person apart and saying, God, we're coming to you together for this person that you would be gracious in their life. It's that and nothing more. A few pastoral thoughts about this. One, this anointing with oil is rare. It's rare in the Bible, and I think it's rare in the life of the church. Now, we have done this on occasion here at Crosspoint, but this is not a prescription for a regular pattern whenever you have any illness that you need to call for this. It seems to be clear that the situation is dire and intense, and this person is very ill, and we are setting them apart for special attention in prayer, asking God to be merciful. It's not a a necessary or special formula. So dear ones, as biblical as this is in James chapter 5, we should not make a strange tradition or relic out of anointing with oil. I remember years ago, this is nobody that you know. This person is not here. None of you would know her. It was in a different context. But in a pastoral role that I had before we started Crosspoint, I remember a dear old lady that wanted to be prayed for oil. She came up to me after the service and she had a little vial of oil that she had gotten years before on a trip to the Holy Lands. And she had bought this at some, I don't know, just some little stand in Jerusalem. And she was thinking in her sweetness, that this little relic from the Holy Lands would have some sort of extra juice to it, and she was saving it for the day when she needed an extra little pop of prayer. I did not have the courage in my youth at the time to disabuse her of her bad theology. I just said, okay, and I prayed with her. I regret that now. Friends, this oil is not some strange relic. Whatever its significance... And this verse draws a lot of attention because of this anointing of oil. Whatever its significance, it is clearly subordinate to what we're about to read in verse 15, which is the prayer of faith. That's where the power is in this passage, not in this mere symbol of oil. All right, verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Okay, verse 15. Here we go. We have to read this verse carefully in context, lest we fall into some very unhealthy, unbiblical teachings. 
Let's look at it carefully. He says that this prayer of faith that we'll discuss in just a moment will save the one who is sick. Again, is it referring to spiritual or to physical sickness? I think in context, clearly it's referring to physical sickness. One way that people have sort of skirted the challenge of understanding this verse is that they say, well, what's going on in verse 15 is the sickness here is a spiritual sickness. It's a matter of discipleship. And so this promise that the Lord will raise this person up is, is, is just a promise that if they repent, God will, will, will restore them to right fellowship. And so what, what that does for people when they read the text that way, it avoids the problem of the seeming unconditional promise that God will definitely heal a person in their sickness through this prayer of faith. And so too, I think, oftentimes, at least in our current setting, as an, a reaction to the abuses of the health and wealth gospel that uses this verse as a kind of claim that God must heal if we have enough faith, people wanting to stay rightly a thousand miles away from that bad theology, I think wrongly interpret this sickness here as a spiritual sickness, but that's not the context of the passage. The passage clearly is referring to physical sickness. This person is raised up. And that's the context of the sickness that we just read about in verse 14. They're on their deathbed. They can't even get up. The elders have to come pray over them. So the sickness is clearly a physical sickness. What then is this prayer of faith that James is saying that this prayer of faith will not might, it will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. What are we to make of this? Is this an unconditional promise that if we just have enough faith, then the Lord is obligated to bring healing? That's how many people in our current context, in our current culture, Read that verse. Let me state the question again. Is this an unconditional promise that if we just have enough faith, whatever this prayer of faith is, if we just have enough of that, then the Lord has promised he will do this. He will save the person who's sick. He will raise them up on the last day. So is the Lord obligated if we just have enough faith? No. I don't think that's what this verse is teaching. Why? Why? Well, if that is so, if, let's just go with that assumption that this is a kind of promise that if you have enough faith, God is definitely obligated to heal you from your physical sicknesses. If that's the case, then how are we to explain Paul himself not being healed from his ailment, his thorn in the flesh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12? Are we to assume that we in our modern church context or some prosperity faith healer on TV has more faith than the apostle Paul who prayed three times for his thorn of flesh to be removed but God said no and he said that my grace is sufficient for you another example of that is 2nd Timothy chapter 4 and verse 20 where Paul is just saying goodbye to Timothy in his second letter and he says something this is where the greetings and the endings of letters are so rich with little spiritual treasures and he says oh by the way and I left Trophimus who was ill at Miletus Wait a minute, Paul, if you, one of the writers of the Bible, don't understand that all you have to do is have enough faith and, and Trophimus would have been healed, did Paul not understand that? No, he's leaving poor Trophimus sick. So Paul clearly doesn't believe that if we just have enough faith, then God is obligated to heal us. Absolutely not the case. So what is meant then by this prayer of faith? It's so important that we understand what that means biblically. One commentator says that it is a prayer offered in faith in line, so important, 
in line with God's will. The prayer of faith is a prayer that has faith not just in God's ability to heal or direct promise that he will, but faith not only in God's power, but faith in God's mysterious good providence, which is often not exactly what we think it should be. It's a faith in the overruling providential purposes of God, as one writer says. It is a prayer that is qualified by the understanding that God's will is supreme. And we see a picture of this by God the Son when he prays to God the Father in the garden. He says, not my will, but your will be done. There's a recognition that in his humanity, and this is mysterious, we don't have time to do a developed talk about Christology, but we have a picture here of Jesus in the flesh, in his humanity, not ever not being God, always God from beginning to end, but this beautiful, strange picture of Jesus in his incarnation saying, not my will, but your will be done to the Father. A recognition that God's will for us as humans sometimes is beyond what we see in that moment. And this prayer of faith is a trust, a resting in, a resignation, a, a standing on the good purposes of God. And what James is simply saying here is that when that prayer of faith is in complete alignment with God's will, yes, it will happen. God will bring it to pass. That person will be healed. But we can't assume that we always know what God's will is. Let me catch my breath for a second. Listen to what 1 John 5 says, verses 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Friends, that's a guarantee, that's a promise. If you ask God for anything according to his sovereign good will, it will come to pass. But friends, it is presumptuous for us as mere humans to believe that all of our prayers are always in accordance with his providential, secret, glorious, mysterious, good, eternal will. There's an if in 1 John 5. And that if should humble us. This is what Jesus says, John 14, 14. If, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And so I think we can conclude from this that this is a guarantee of God bringing physical healing through whatever means whether it's through a doctor, through time, or whatever, God will raise that person up if our prayer filled with faith is in line with his perfect will in that situation. Yes, it will happen, but it is absolute arrogance and presumption of us to believe that we know what that is as if we can demand that God would act that way every time we come to him. Before we move on, friends, what is this not? What is this prayer of faith not? Well, it's certainly not dependent on some amount of faith in the individual. And this misunderstanding has been used to absolutely wreck some people's faith. Friends, the faith here is not even the faith of the individual. It's of the elders. So, You've heard this teaching before when people don't get healed and somebody will say to them, some, some, some faith healer will say to them, well, you just didn't have enough faith. Friends, in this situation, the person isn't even the one whose faith is in view. It's the faith of the elders. What about Mark chapter 2 when this man who was a paralytic carried on a mat because he couldn't walk. He was handed, he, would, his, he had four friends carry him, dig a hole in the ceiling because the crowd was so big that they couldn't get to Jesus. The friends dug the hole in the ceiling and lowered him down into the house where Jesus was. That doesn't happen every day. But friends, the point is, is it wasn't the faith of this man 
Jesus says, he looks to this man, he says, because of the faith of these people, I will forgive you. So the faith, the amount of faith that a person has towards God's goodness and healing is not the decisive thing here. The faith of the person who's sick isn't even mentioned in James 5. This is not, this faith, this prayer of faith is not the key to activating the response of God as if we will just enter the right combination code, then we unlock the goodness of God. Friends, that is not Bible, that is heresy. And it causes to discourage many tender souls. Now, is faith important? Yes. Yes, your faith is important. But your faith is not the decisive power in the universe. It's not even close. Don't buy into that false gospel. God's will is and always is. God heals people in the Bible when there is no faith, little faith, lots of faith. God is sovereign. Okay. Now it gets even more dicey. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So James here, <laughs> okay, here we go. You need a break? All right, all right, shake it out a little bit. Look, let's focus. James here seems to clearly be connecting sick, physical sickness and sin in some cases. Important word, if. If he has committed sins. So if, it seems to be clear, the implication is if he's on his sickbed because of sin, then God will forgive him and, and, and raise him up. Please hear me carefully. I am not saying that this verse is teaching us that our physical sickness is always a direct result of our sin. How ironic that we have this text when all of our pastors are out in COVID quarantine this Sunday. <laughs> that is not what the Bible teaches all the time. I mean, I think of places like John chapter 9, where there's this man that was born blind from birth. And these religious re leaders bring this man, born blind from birth. And can you imagine, they're treating him like a lab rat in front of Jesus. You know, it's like an experiment at some hospital. Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? I mean, can you imagine saying that in front of the guy? Like he's just some, I mean, come on, man, have a little, have some couth. But they asked Jesus, and Jesus says, no, it wasn't sin that caused this man to be born blind, but the purposes of God, that God might be glorified through his life. And then the concluding rest of the chapter is the story of how Jesus heals this man of his blindness, which was clearly not the result of any sin on his part, but according to the good, mysterious, wise providence of God's will in his life. So no... We can't say that sickness is always the result of sin, always, but I need to preach the whole counsel of God's word to you. Sometimes the Bible goes that direction. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul is teaching about receiving the Lord's Supper, and he is chastising the Corinthian church for their selfishness in the way that they are treating one another. They are sinning against one another by the way that they're treating one another. Rich Christians are hoarding their resources, not sharing with poor Christians. It's an absolute mess. And listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 carefully. Verse 27. Whoever then, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. In other words, let the Lord's Supper be this time of kind of spiritual renewal and a fresh opportunity to repent and turn away from your sin of this past week. Verse 29, listen to verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body 
eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30, listen to this. This is Paul's conclusion. That is why, because of your selfishness and sin that he's just detailed, that is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So Paul, in this text, now I just said John 9 says that, there's, that we can't always make the assumption that you're sick because of your sin. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul brings up a situation where that is the case, clearly. That is the case. And so, hear me again. I am not saying that all sickness is a result of sin. But I am saying, and I think James is saying, and I think Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 11, that at times it is, and God is willing to do whatever he wants to do to get the attention of his children who are wandering, even if it means putting them on their back to get their attention. God is good like that. Verse 16. Now, do not go out of here. Don't go out of here and say, Brad said that if you're sick, you're a sinner. The Bible's saying that might be the case. And so radically deal with yourself that you probe and examine your own heart so that you use every opportunity to be close to God. Verse 16, therefore... Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. So what's going on here? He says, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. I think he's picking up on the point that he made at the end of verse 15, that there is this possibility Again, I emphasize the possibility of the sickness of this person on their deathbed that needs the elders to pray over them. He's saying there's the possibility that this sickness is the result of sin and rebellion. So James, being the good shepherd he is here, and not just merely wanting to tickle people's ears and tell them that everything is okay, but giving them the possibility of the hard truth that they're in the situation they're in because of their disobedience to God, he is encouraging them to, in a sense, cover all their bases, so to speak, to be vigilant, to take stock of their lives, and to examine what may be behind their suffering. That's what's going on in verse 16. And then to work out that confession in the context of just the believing community. Notice what's in, verse, in view here in verse 16 is not confessing it merely to these officers of the church or these people in leadership, the elders, pastors, but confess your sins to one another. Live in such a way that you're constantly dealing with the state of your soul before God so that you are performing a kind of spiritual health checkup all the time in case that it might lead to God's chastisement of you that you may be healed. One quick aside here. This just absolutely dismantles the Catholic understanding of confessing your sins to a priest. Now, I, I, di I didn't wake up this morning and say, let's pick on Catholics. It's just, it's in the text. It doesn't say confess your sins to the elders or to the priest. It says confess your sins to one another. And I would say, just, just pastorally, that I think the reason over the centuries that the Catholic Church has developed this understanding of confessing to a priest is a, it's a doctrine called sacerdotalism. It's this focus on the power of the priest owes, because of the heresy of the Catholic Church that wants to centralize power in the priesthood for the sake of the of the of the funding of the ministry of the Catholic Church, and, and that's just unbiblical. The, the priesthood of all believers is the doctrine of the New Testament, not the priesthood of a priest. And, and, but the thing is, friends, we, we, we as, as, as Bible-believing Protestants in the 21st century, we must be careful not to unwittingly, subconsciously fall into this this air. I mean, we sort of scoff, we roll our eyes at people that go into a little booth and confess their sins to one person. And we realize it's unbiblical from places like this. I mean, it says confess your sins to one another. 
But subconsciously, we fall into that error as well. You, you, you don't think that my prayers are speaking to me. Friends, there should be a kind of counseling, encouraging, exhorting ministry that is pervasive throughout the whole church. So verse 16 is written to you, dear one, wherever you are. If you are a believer, you have the responsibility to not only confess your sins to one another, but to pray for one another, to be the type of person who is at a place of spiritual maturity where you can receive that because you and your life in the local church is meant to be part of God's means for restoration. You, every single Christian, And when we write ourselves out of this verse and we think, oh, well, the church leadership will handle it, we fall into the same air. You're a priest, Peter says in 1 Timothy 2. You're part of a royal generation called to show forth the glories of God in his marvelous light in a dark world. So what is this verse telling us to do? Let's speed along here. It's telling us, I think, to take our sanctification seriously. To examine our lives is telling us to live in accountable relationships within the church. Now, of course, there's lots we could say about confessing your sins to one another. It doesn't mean you put everything on Facebook. Come on now. Especially you millennials. You guys put too much stuff out there. It doesn't mean you just share everything with everybody. It's not what this verse means. It means that in wisdom, you have people that you spiritually trust in the body of Christ that can be safe places for you to go to unburden your soul from your sin. Amen? This verse is telling us to take the spiritual life seriously. It's telling us to to be active in the mortification of our flesh, to use an old Puritan phrase, to take God's word, take God's sword, take the weapon of our repentance against the residue of sin in our life and make war with it and confess it and bring it into the light of accountability with trusted Christian friends in the local church by confessing our sins to one another before they overtake us and put us on our deathbed. Friends, that's what this verse is telling us to do. This, friends, is the God of the Bible. He loves us that much. We all understand this on a human level. I mean, good parents don't let their children run wild. If your kid is being horribly acting in a restaurant or out in public, good parents take action. And that action oftentimes is severe discipline. And what James is saying here is there are times when people are on, not all the time, John 9, this man wasn't born blind because of sin, but sometimes you're on your back or you're suffering because God in his severe love for you, his kind mercy is shaking you. He's putting his hands on the side of your head and he's saying, wake up. So let's zoom out here before we end with verses 17 and 18 quickly. What's the point of this text in relation to James? He's just saying, friends, live out this type of authentic faith in this way. And what's really in view here, yes, in a sense, on the surface, it's prayer for physical healing. But the deeper concern of James in this text, underneath, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is reconciliation spiritually with God for believers, so this, this is a kind of working out of sanctification, what the Christian life should look like in the regular rhythms of church life. We are sinners, and the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins. Our sin is an affront to a holy God. Even my sins that I may think are less comparison to some wicked person out there, my sin is an affront to a holy God, and it deserves rightly God's eternal punishment. But the good news of the gospel is that God the Son came, and he bore the punishment of God the Father for my sin on the cross. He removed it. He took it away. He gave me a new nature. He gave me a new heart. He made me alive. He gave me the gift of faith whereby I can turn from trusting in my own filthy rag righteousness. I can turn from coveting my own sin and I can put my hope in what Jesus has done for the only means by which I might be reconciled to God. That's the good news of the gospel. And this verse is saying 
That although we have been saved from sin, we still have to deal with the presence of sin until we meet Christ face to face. And this verse is about, this passage is about sanctification. It's about how Christians need to remember the gospel that just to utter a prayer at the beginning of a Christian life is not all that there is to it. And you just write it out and do whatever you want to do until you die. Nothing could be further from the truth. This means that when we are saved by sin, we will still have to deal with the presence of sin and the way we deal with it, which sometimes will put us on our back, is by going to God praying to God, living a life of accountability and repentance and humility, asking for forgiveness from God as we confess our sins to one another. Friends, this verse is about the ground level sanctification that should be the regular experience of every Christian in every church. This verse is not merely about physical healing. It's about how the gospel works itself out in the sanctification, the growing in Christ of every Christian. So then what are we to make of verses 17 and 18? Let me read it. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Why does James bring in this Old Testament story of Elijah? I think it's very clear. What's going on here is that Elijah's ministry to Israel in the Old Testament is a picture of all that James has been speaking about. The situation that James is referring to comes from 1 Kings chapter 16, 17, and 18, which I don't have time to, to detail uh, uh, in, uh, with a lot of detail, but go back and read at some point, maybe this afternoon or this week. And the situation is, is that there is this new king in Israel. His name is Ahab. He is a wicked cat. In fact, the Bible says that his wickedness provoked the Lord more than all the other kings of Israel added up. This joker was such a bad ruler. And his bad leadership had brought in, he brought in these false prophets of Baal. And Elijah, in response to Ahab's poor leadership and the false worship of the people, prayed to God that there would be a drought in the land. And God answered, and for over three years, three and a half years, it did not pray, and it was God chastising, bringing a physical trial, in a sense, a sickness to the land because of the rebellion of the people. And then in 1 Kings 17, Elijah has this confrontation with these false prophets, these 450 false prophets on Mount Carmel, where he taunts them in their face and he causes ultimately the end of it is God bringing down fire on these false prophets and Elijah kills all of them. And this idolatry, at least temporarily, is expunged from the land. And now, at, in 1 Kings chapter 18, Elijah now prays for rain to come and it comes. What's going on here in this example in verses 17 and 18? It's a kind of picture of exactly what James has been talking about. We are giving ourselves over. We are in unrepentance, which may cause you to be physically sick. Israel was rebelling against God, chasing after false gods. He put them on their back with a drought. And not until they repented did he actually bring the healing of rain that came through the prayer of this spiritual leader, Elijah. And that's exactly what's going on in this text. He's saying, prayer works. Sometimes you're sick because of your rebellion. And use it as an opportunity. Use it as an opportunity to examine yourselves and repent and be reconciled to God. I end with this, four reflections. One, Christians are called to be praying, praising Godward people. This text is, I mean, let's not be consumed by the world. Don't be conformed by this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Friends, whether we're suffering, pray. If we're, praise, if we're praising, if things are going well, sing praises to God. Friends, the Christian life is not just adding on God one day a week or securing some salvation. It's a Godwardness. Let's be people who, whatever the situation is, we are Godward in our orientation. We exist to bring him glory. Two, God takes our lives very seriously, and so should we. What should be clear from this text is that God is willing to go to great lengths to get our attention. 
He chastens those whom he loves. Friends, do not look at people who are prospering in their sin, seemingly comfortable, rich, and healthy, and happy, and be envious of them. The Psalms and the Proverbs are full of exhortations. Don't envy the rich, because it may be a sign, and I'm not saying this is the case of all rich people. I'm just saying when we look at other people who don't seem to be chastened in their lives like we are, don't be envious of them. Be thankful for the Lord's chastening. Be thankful for your difficulty because it's God treating you as a son. And as you look at the prosperity of the wicked, don't be jealous of them because God is giving themselves over. Yeah, they'll have 70 or 80 years of maybe comfort, but friends, there's coming a judgment. And we should take our lives seriously. Thirdly, Christians are to live a local church-centered life. Friends, this verse makes no sense. You get, if, 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 you're not, if you're not vitally connected to a local church, this verse is an impossibility for you to obey. I mean, what are elders to you if you're not part of a local church? Who are the one and others? You just kind of, any Christian that you see around, you just kind of go confessing your sins? That's spiritually dangerous. No, it's people in the context of a local church who have built up trust and accountability with one another. Friends, we're to live in this kind of way. And let me just say pastorally before we come to an end here is that one of my great concerns about this COVID pandemic and time of isolation is how potentially spiritually dangerous it is for people because we can't gather together. Now, I realize that many of you should stay home for a variety of good reasons. Maybe you're vulnerable or you have small children or you have an elderly person that you live with or your, your health is compromised in some way. But friends, if you have just got into a bad habit or you don't like to be inconvenienced or you think it's kind of strange now that things are different than they used to be and that and not a legitimate concern for some COVID situation is causing you to sort of check out from gathering or checking in online, you, dear friends, are in a spiritually precarious situation the thrust, the whole tenor, the whole vibe, the whole environment of the Bible. But certainly this text is a group of people who fight to do life with one another and don't let go of each other. Dear ones, don't drift from the fellowship of the local church. And then finally and fourthly, oh man, I've spoken for an hour. Oh, here we go, let me stop. God, you know, don't fuss at me. I just know my, our people's attention spans. Come on, come on, don't. God, friends, listen to me. God uses prayer to bring about his sovereign will. God's sovereign. He's going to do what he's going to do. I believe in the Westminster Confession of Faith I believe in the London Baptist Confession of Faith of 1689 that says in paragraph 3 on Providence that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass. He knows the end from the beginning. Ephesians 1 verse 11 says, all things work according to the counsel of his will. Tomorrow is certain. Tomorrow is set. The end is etched in God's secret, divine, good, perfect will. But God's sovereignty and God's goodness is so far above our understanding of what that even is in that in his, is that in his kindness, he uses the means of our prayers to be the ways that he brings about his sovereign will. And he has fastened his end. He's fastened the certain future to the prayers, the prayers of faith, like people like us. So friends, you may say in your philosophical objection, because you took an ethics or a philosoph philosophy class in college, it's a, well, okay, good. So you read a book for a semester, and you can ponder the greatness of God and question him. Oh, friends, don't do that. Don't do that. Is this hard to piece together? Yes, and thank God for that. God can't be 
philosophize into a, a, a human philosophy. He can't be quantified. He is sovereign. The future is set. And the way that God brings about his certain set future is through the means of people like you and me actually praying. So prayer works. That's the conclusion. The effective prayer of people like us is mighty. It works. Oh, wait a minute. If my prayer affects things, well, God's not sovereign. Friends, don't stand with your arms folded next to God and say, this is how you work. There seems to be a contradiction in your scriptures. Come on. You're like a pot talking to the potter saying, I don't know. I don't know. You didn't make this little bevel. Uh, Are you sure you knew what you were doing? That is the height of arrogance. What what an invitation to pray to a sovereign God who uses our prayers in some way that's beyond our understanding. It's inscrutable to bring about his sovereign will that we would be healed and make it all the way home. Lord, thank you for this passage. Use it to refresh, equip, edify your saints and to draw unbelievers to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.